0: You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. And as always, I have a fabulous guest that I can't wait to introduce you to. Today, we are going to be speaking with Leanne Davy. For the last 25 years, Leanne has researched and advised teams on how to achieve high performance. Known as the Teamwork Doctor, she's worked with teams from the front lines to the boardroom across a variety of industries and around the glo- globe, from Boston to Bangkok. In working with hundreds of teams, including 26 global Fortune 500 companies and counting, she has developed a unique perspective on the challenges that teams face and how to solve them. Beyond her work in the boardroom, Leanne is a New York Times bestselling author and a contributor to Harvard Business Review, CNN, NPR, USA Today, The Globe and Mail, and Forbes for her expertise on increasing productivity, enhancing engagement, developing leaders, and as one client put it, dealing with the damn drama. Welcome to the show, Leanne.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Kristen. I'm great. I'm very, very excited for this conversation.
0: Me too. And when I was getting ready for our conversation, I was just looking to see when was the first time we met. And we had done an interview even back then in 2015. You were a speaker at the HRPA. And back then I was at the crack
1: of dawn, right?
0: Like (laughs) 7am. It was, it was. And that's when I already knew this whole interviewing thing. There was, I was getting a taste of what it was and how much I loved it. Um, So I'm super excited for us to get to have this conversation today. And as a starting point, Leanne, um, tell us a little bit more about your journey, how you got to doing this work that you're doing in the world. Okay.
1: So I failed calculus in first year university. My (laughs) dream of being a doctor ended. And uh, so I was trying to put my life back together. And I took this course in my second year of university called industrial organizational psychology. And in the course, so this was 1990. And uh, we studied the space shuttle Challenger disaster and how team dynamics and the culture of the organization allowed them to take off on a cold, cold morning uh, with frozen O-rings, which is what caused the disaster. And I thought, oh, I'm in. (laughs) And so Only because I failed calculus uh, did I end up taking this class and find this field that I fell in love with uh, immediately and have been in for many, many years since. So, um, you know, went to grad school, got into what was the um, the best field at the time for a geeky measurement focused IO student to get into, which was employee engagement surveys um, and really from there just got more and more interested in executive teams executive team dynamics business strategy so it it's been a ever it was a big 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 inflection point failing calculus in first year and then uh, it's been a pretty straight line ever since then <laughs>
0: I love that. It, there, no accidents. You were meant. You were <laughs> deterred over here. Yes. We want to use all of that brightness, but we have this other place. We're going to take you in. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. And, uh, I got the message pretty loudly and clearly. And, uh, thankfully I listened Yes, yes.
0: And I think, I mean, I think everyone's fascinated when it comes with teams. I just think it's um, when you have a whole bunch of humans working together, it's always gonna be fascinating because humans (laughs) are fascinating. And then when you have different dynamics all in play. Um, So there's so many different places I I wanna go with you when it starts to be uh, looking at teams and team dynamics. Uh, As a starting point, before we start to get into some of the foundations and things that you can do to make teams more effective, I think one of the things you shared Is that there have been very interesting experiences that you've uh, been part of over the years, whether that be supporting others in terms of teams, but also things that you've experienced as well, which I like when you talk about it, you say, yeah, but they were all growth and learning opportunities for you. And so even as a starting point, because I think people are going to hear this and they're going to say like, oh, teams, like the stuff that goes on in a dysfunction. And I like what your client said as well. Um, start. Let's start off with some of the craziest and oddest, and uh, I can't believe this is even happening, things that you've experienced for either yourself or with some of the teams you've supported.
1: I'll give you a couple. So one was when I first started. So I, I had been this sort of geeky graduate student and in graduate school, like you get criticized and torn down. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a rough environment. And so I get hired because of my statistical um, skills. And when I get in there, the guy who's been doing all the statistics on the employee surveys is doing it wrong. And he's actually sending out data that and, and findings that are not true to clients. And so uh, you know, somebody asked me to give feedback on a 360 feedback project to give feedback on him, and so I say, you know, um, he doesn't know about how these statistics works, and so you know, data that aren't right have uh, gone out to the client, and and his boss comes marching up to my desk and says, "You can't say that in a 360." I'm like what? <laughs> well, that you can't document that, or but, and I was like, oh. Okay. So, uh, and and as I always say, like, I wasn't even halfway through my first thing of yellow lined paper as an employee in a corporate world before I learned that, oh, apparently we aren't allowed to tell the truth here. Yes. So, so that was one, I guess, another crazy one. I do a lot of work in Silicon Valley and I once did have to get physically in between two guys who came across the table at each other. Um, so that was exciting. So, you know, it's, and, and everything in between, right? So, Um, But I would say that conflict avoidance, the first story is much, much, much more prevalent than the um, unhealthy, too much you know, violent, horrible conflict. Yes. So. And that's kind of been a theme in my in my career as well.
0: Yes, 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 the avoidance. And I think that lends itself and leads its way itself nicely into when you start to think about team dynamics and some of the challenges and things that get in the way with teams not being able to be as high performing or working as effectively together. Yeah. What are some of those common traits, common behaviors, challenges that you see?
1: Yeah, they really go into two categories. So there's all the challenges of alignment. So we're at cross purposes. Um, Our priorities have never been aligned to other priorities in other parts of the organization. So, um, So we aren't lined up. Um, We aren't clear about what we're trying to accomplish so so teams that are not aligned right from the individual knows what they need to be doing that makes sense with how they're interdependent with their colleagues that team fits in with a broader matrix or cross-functional organization. And all of that is lined up to adding value for the customer. So all the alignment related issues. And then the second category would be all the team dynamic related issues. So uh, there isn't trust, therefore there isn't transparent communication. Conflict is not productive and in, in fact is more like friction that wears everybody down. So those are the two broad categories.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's break down because I, I see that as well, when I'm working with organizations, either individuals separately, and they're telling me what's going on in the team or where I've actually been brought in to do some of the work with the team. And those two things I see very often the trust piece, the trust isn't there. And then the conflict, How? because conflict is not bad per se, of course, we want to have healthy debate, we want to have healthy dialogue. Um, we don't want teams that are not talking because that brings up that's, that's not what we want to have happening. Um, so let's break down each of those because I think trust being eroded in teams. I see this very, very often. So talk to me a little bit more when it comes to trust.
1: Okay. So we talk about, my husband, who's my business partner, calls it our trust cake. Uh, I always draw it like a multi-tiered cake. So trust is this tiny word with so much psychology in it. So let's think about these tiers of the trust cake. So the bottom of the trust cake is really because of how our brains work. Um, Trust is a lot about predictability. So that bottom layer of the trust cake is just how connected are we? So is your behavior- um, does it make sense to me? Is it known to me? Um, do I know what to expect? And, and when we have that, then, you know, we aren't thrown off. We don't read into behavior. So that base level of connection. And of course, for many of us who are now working on teams where we've never met in person, um, we've never had time around a water cooler. We've never had time to break bread together. That connection layer is already disrupted. So that's the base layer the next layer, once we can say like, okay, I kind of get you, the next layer is, um, do I have confidence in you? Can I count on you? So it's really about credibility. So uh, I can't trust you if you don't know how to do your job. And if I'm vulnerable to you, which is what trust is about, it's about being vulnerable. um, Then if you don't know what you're doing, that's not a safe place to trust. So that second tier of the trust cake is about competence and credibility. The third layer, you may understand the person, like the person, you may think that they're amazing, very capable. But the third layer is about reliability. Can I count on you? And what's happening with you know people being overwhelmed, um, people having you know different priorities from one another, sometimes people aren't delivering, not because they don't want to, not because they're not capable, but for a whole variety of other reasons. So the third layer in the trust cake is about reliability. And then the fourth layer, that sort of topper on the cake, which is what many of us think when we say the word trust, the integrity layer which is about will you take advantage of me when I'm vulnerable? Are you fully candid with me? Are you struggling but faking it? And so I, I actually I'm more vulnerable to you than I know. So um, trust is yes, it's a very, very, very important thing. But we can't just if somebody says, you know, we don't have a lot of trust on our team. You know, I'm going deep, I'm pulling out the cake. and And we're trying to figure out what level has, has eroded trust because the remedies are completely different depending on where, where it's broken. So yeah, hugely important topic.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important how you've broken it down in those layers. So if we are looking at those layers, I think, Um, I'm seeing that a lot, right? Whether it was the pandemic or even now after the pandemic is done with different organizations, sometimes they're going to stay remote or they're only going to the office two days a week. So if we're trying to remedy that first foundational, because I do hear this challenge coming up a lot where they aren't getting that opportunity to be able to meet in person, have meals together, have that water cooler talk. Side note, I talked to a leader last week who was saying that they have this, this Zoom water cooler meeting that happens a couple of times a week where people just show up to try to yeah. get the water cooler and which I love it's trying I to I think build that's that. great right? Yep. I, I thought it was very creative. Um, but so we're looking at that first one foundational, and they are having challenges that they're not going to meet, be able to meet together. How can we start to build that trust, the foundational, that
1: first layer
0: yep. in an
1: online environment? So I, I'm happy to put this in the show notes for you. I created a set of, of nine different exercises that you can use with virtual teams that are kind of icebreakers meant to help us connect better, understand where we're coming from. So I'm happy to share that with your listeners. They can use them um, as, you know, as they want. Um, so that's one thing I love the water cooler zoom idea. Um, I love actually investing in times to be together. And we know from the research that you don't have to be together very long to get the benefits. So, you know, how do we invest once a year in bringing folks physically together, particularly physically together with lots of downtime, lots of opportunity to eat meals together, to have some fun, to, to have some in-group humor, all those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, we're saving as we don't have offices and and all those sorts of things. Let's reinvest some of that, and at least once a year, bringing our teams physically together, it makes all the difference.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. And I've seen it firsthand, even when I've done the training, or sometimes where we've had a combination, we're working together over eight months or 12 months, and we might do some virtual and some in person. And that helps to create the foundation, especially if we have those bookends in person. Um, So love it. So and then second, for sure, we're making sure do they have the competencies? Can they do the work? Number three, I'm curious around that layer when it starts to come to because I think this I see this one a lot as well, where they are feeling under resourced, they're overwhelmed, they're being pulled in a lot of different directions. And I'm curious your thoughts here. One of the things I make sure that I'm also coaching my clients on is sometimes what they'll even do is they'll they'll feel overwhelmed, so they'll avoid. And I said, (laughs) like even just sending an email saying received your email. Yeah. give me a couple of days to get back to you or can't give you a, a date now, wanna make sure I have a realistic date, I'll get back to you. So yeah. even being able to just give that initial communication and then get back with something, I've noticed has had a huge impact on the communication and trust with some of the people because at least that individual is feeling like, okay, you've received my communication, you're right. acknowledging it and you're gonna get back in touch with me. But what are some of the things you notice can help to alleviate when individuals are like, that's what's happening. They're feeling overwhelmed. And so because of that, they're overloaded. I was talking to a client recently, like 250 emails a day. Um, It's very hard for anybody. It's not very sustainable. Um, So if they're being pulled in all these different directions and they're struggling with communication, how do you think they should be addressing that?
1: Yeah. So I think on the prioritizing your Time. It's a matter of okay. Here's going to be my time for triaging emails, and I'm going to have three times a day where I'm going to triage the emails. But I'm actually going to triage them. So I'm actually going to look. You know which of, which of these are you know bleeding out, and I. <laughs> I need to actually deal with them, yeah. and which are the ones that I need to put into you know some kind of slot I hold on Friday afternoons to address things before the end of the week. So triaging, I completely agree with you around um, you know that quick note back to just say I've I've put this in for Friday afternoon. I'll get back to you. Um, the other thing is that uh, um, I, I wrote an article about how to make email a less soul destroying task, and yeah. and I think. Most teams have some work to do to work on their email hygiene um, because email is the the biggest source of that complete overwhelm, that in meetings. So the data say that meetings are up 225% since COVID. So the average employee is spending 22 hours a week in meetings and 11 hours doing email. So there's pretty much no time to either pee or get your work done. Yeah. Or maybe you have to choose between yes. pee or get. You're it doing it.
0: it on your phone while you're going that's, to the bathroom. That's a good point. It does
1: explain why so many people take their take their phones into the washroom. Um, Dude, I got six emails. I got to respond. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the two biggest things we need to do are to reset on meetings. Um, Companies like Shopify that did the, uh, I think of it like Avengers Endgame when Thanos just snapped and half the population of the universe disappeared. Um, Shopify did the the blip and they just deleted all the standing meetings and you had to rebuild from scratch. So we need to address meetings and we need to address the email problems so that we can create a uh, way more space for focus and flow. Um, but I, you know, as I watch people, they're incredibly inefficient at working. They're really inefficient. So, you know, they're and I catch myself doing it as well, right. I'm in the midst of one task and the computer hangs for 10 seconds. So I pick up my phone and go on Instagram or, um, you know, I have three half, written emails and I'm bouncing from one thing to the next. So, you know, that's a self-inflicted wound. And so if we were to get better at time management and you know, set so um you know, I have my little time timer that I use for anything I'm doing that I set and I have 45 minutes with all notifications off with all distractions away from me because I know in that 45 minutes I can just get a ton done. Then I have 15 minutes to you know, respond to email, get up, walk around, get a drink of water. And so I think part of the overwhelm is that we have poor boundaries. We're not managing those boundaries. Um, we're never getting into focus and flow. So we work through our existing workloads so inefficiently. So there are lots of things that you can do as an individual. Um, but then I would say management needs to take ownership of dealing with this meeting bloat that we've got. Um, and, and getting the email problem under control.
0: Yeah, I I 100% wholeheartedly agree with you. I've and I talk about it from both angles as well, right? So on the individual level, I think that it's it's incredibly powerful. When you have those boundaries, you're creating the white space, Um, you're doing things intentionally ahead of time to get yourself set up. Listen, technology, social media emails are designed to get your attention and to notify you, uh, especially social media, which we could have a whole conversation a whole episode on that. But if you don't create the boundaries, it's designed to be very addictive and try to keep you there as long as possible. Um, so I think it's really important that people are being very conscious of, setting those you know right from the beginning of the day before they even touch anything get very clear on what their priorities are creating those white spaces making sure that they're um, when they're doing deep work that they might be doing those in 60 90 minute sprints there's so many things on the individual level to be able to take their to, to take their calendars back to take their time back yeah. and then I also agree with you how it's not just an either or it's a yes and yeah culturally, there is i mean the meaning one this has been before the pandemic i've been talking but, but about 225 i mean this increase. is out of control this it was out of control, control. now and it's I've
1: just ludicrous
0: <laughs> it it's, it has gotten ludicrous and yeah. I, I mean leaders who are listening right now and when you, and if you are leaders who are in a position culturally to start to make decisions, uh, different decisions and advocate for this. Yeah. I a hundred percent really, really, really encourage you to take a step back and ask yourself some questions about this, because I think there are a lot of meetings that do not need to be meetings they it could be a phone call. They could be, I don't even want to say an email, but they could be a conversation. And that
1: sometimes it's email not... is more efficient, right? Like exactly. my new rule is if it, if it doesn't require conflict, it doesn't get a meeting. Right. If right. there's no conflict, no meeting. Right.
0: So, everyone, did you hear what Leanne just said? Say it one more time. One more time. So, if it doesn't
1: require productive conflict, it's not a meeting.
0: Period. Right. How many, if you're really following that mantra that Leanne just stated, very well stated. how many meetings are happening that don't need to be meetings? Because this is what's happening as well. Where, where, When do people have time to do their work if they're being overloaded with meetings all day long? Well, from my experience, a lot of times leaders are doing it in the evenings after they get home because they haven't of had course. time all day. Of course.
1: And if you think about it, like when we go to a meeting, I was in a meeting last week and they had a consultant come in and he did the dread reading of the slides. And I was like, oh my God. And, and I was having this response of wanting to put the podcast on 1.5 speed, right? Yes. Like he was so slow in trying to be very articulate. And I thought, first of all, there's no conflict here. He's giving us his take on what's going on in the environment. Yes. So I could read that at about four times the speed that he said it. What a colossal, and this was the executive team of a multi-billion dollar corporation. So what a colossal waste of time to bring that into a meeting now having me read it quickly ahead of time which would have taken much less time and using the meeting time to say there's some contentious stuff in here some of these scenarios if these happen they'd be trouble for our company how do we want to think about that what do we want to monitor um what would we do it, those Everybody wants to be at that meeting. That is a really valuable thing. But we read much more efficiently than we listen. And so when you put inform into a meeting, you you take up four times more time than what's yeah.
0: necessary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that, like you said, with the meetings, that's very good use of the time where dialogue and conversation yes. is needing to take place that we don't want to be in a thread of 15, 18 emails going back and forth. That's not efficient use of the email. That's a great use of a meeting getting to the point. Um, I think the email etiquette, there's again, individual level and cultural level um, what are we doing in terms of educating people when you're sending out emails and when you're doing CCing everybody, you possibly organization in your emails. My husband experiences this one all the time. It's like that 250 emails would probably actually only be a hundred yeah. <laughs> if he was not CC on emails, which unfortunately yes. cc in such a way that he can't know that he doesn't need to. So he still has to go through and read it. It's not something where it's a obvious,
1: the, the thing, best, um, the best thing in my article about making emails suck less is getting really good at subject lines, right? Yes. So the right subject line means you yes. don't even have to click on the email for your triage process. Yes. You're just scrolling down the list and you can move to different folders based on just the subject lines should be that good. Yeah. The other thing I do in an email is I, when I, in the body of the email, I have one line that's the punchline. And then I put a, a series of asterisks and I put all the context below. So if all you, or if there's action items, I'll color code them by person in the body. Like nice. the whole thing is we tend to send messages to do what we want them to do. And and when you send an email everything you should be focusing on is about how do I make this serve the reader, not me, right? Mm-hmm. So if I thought about that, I would think about what can I put in the subject line that will allow them to triage it without opening it. Yeah. Um, I would think about what do I put in the very first line? So they get the TLDR on what I need from them. If there's stuff going to a bunch of people, how do I use color coding so that they can quickly scan? Okay. That's the thing I own. Nice. So, you know, how do I send an email, or write? an email, thinking about the person who's got 250 of these suckers today, um, how would I change how I craft that email to make their life easier and make it easier for them to do what I need them to do? And we just, we don't even begin to think that way.
0: Yes. Amazing. I think that's such an important philosophy and an opportunity, such a great shift that can happen. Um okay, last the fourth layer. Oh yeah, integrity. I experienced this one a lot in terms of not just the integrity piece, but ultimately also the values, right? Where they say, these are our values, these are the behaviors, these are our guiding principles. And yet we've got some people on those teams. I'm just thinking, again, you were talking about senior leadership teams, and I've seen this a lot with the senior leadership teams, and we want to be modeling this from the top. But again, it could be different teams at different levels within the organization. And those values are not being lived and breathed. And of course, that is eroding trust. What are your thoughts
1: you just can't do it right you just like there there's not much to say about it it is so costly Um, Once you erode trust at the integrity level, that's the layer that in some cases can't be rebuilt or if it can, uh, they're going to need somebody like you and me. They're going to need a licensed nuclear operator and it's going to (laughs) cost them a lot of money. And I don't feel badly about it because destroying integrity, you reap what you sow there, baby. So um, just don't do it. And, And that's a lot of things. So that's putting a brass plaque on the wall and behaving differently. Certainly that's it. Um, but it's, it's, um, taking advantage of someone who's not in the room talking about them when they're not in the room. It's pretending everything is fine when it's not. Um, how am I supposed to trust you? So as a leader, I see leaders make this mistake because they're trying to be this shock absorber. That's just always presenting a positive, inspirational view. And then when the shit hits the fan, um, the, the people are like, what? And trust is gone. And they're like, well, I was, no, that's not integrity. Like you can be a leader that can be both vulnerable and accountable at the same time that can earn both confidence and connection from your people. And so, you know, integrity, there's a lot in there, but it's every single time, take the high road, every single time, do the hard thing because it'll make everything else easier. And I think the problem is so many folks are so tapped out. Yes. They take the shortcut. They do the cheap thing. They, oh, and, and then they pay and they pay and they pay. And sometimes in ways that cannot be recouped. And so it's just the layer of the trust cake. You just can't, you can't violate
0: that. Yes. I I I've seen it and it's, it's, it makes me sad to be quite honest. It makes me sad when when it's they're they're good companies, they have great intentions, and yet they'll have a couple of leaders on the team that are not living and breathing the values. And there's no accountability for when they're not leaving the li- living and breathing the values because they might be achieving business outcomes. But from my perspective, there's a lot of collateral damage and you're going to, you're going to lose really good people because those high integrity individuals are not going to con- continue to condone that yeah. behavior.
1: Yep. It's so sad. What a waste. Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's now move over to the conflict piece because I think again, conflict can get a bad rap and conflict when uh, done in a healthy, productive way is very important. Um, So talk to me about conflict, what maybe gets in the way of healthy dialogue and what it looks like to have some um, healthy conflict.
1: Yeah. I think the biggest problem is we don't know the difference between tension and friction. Um, So tension is the healthy form. So it's a stretch. It's, I need to think about this from a different angle. I need to understand this with empathy. Um, And that kind of tension, which is we haven't thought about this plan through the eyes of the suppliers. We've only thought about it through the customer lens or, you know, yes, that makes a ton of sense from an accounting perspective, but as we roll it out to folks in the field, it doesn't make much sense operationally. Um, So tension, it's still uncomfortable right it's yes. uncomfortable to be pulled in a direction that you didn't start in um but it's very very different i talk about that as um you know tension feels kind of like doing yoga it's mm-hmm. like it hurts let's be clear <laughs> but uh, it's the kind of hurt that you know is making you better right versus friction which is not listening uh retrenching uh forming factions uh and and that is unhealthy conflict. And that's uh metaphorically kind of like a blister. And
0: mm-hmm. there is
1: nothing good about a blister. Mm-hmm. It just wears you down and slows you down. So I think the biggest barrier is that we don't know the difference. So we avoid tension because we're afraid of friction. Right? right? And so we, we haven't articulated, look, these are the tensions that are supposed to be in these conversations. And let's make sure we know what they are. And let's make sure we have a good facilitator or a good chair of the meeting to uh, make sure that we're getting lots of tensions, but also to protect us from the frictions and make sure that we know what those are. We're all agreed that those kinds of behaviors are not tolerated. So I think that's the biggest thing. So that's what I spend a lot of time on with teams is making sure they can picture and envision what healthy tension looks like but also that they can really quickly spot and recognize friction uh, and shut it down.
0: Yes. Okay. So I know somebody's going to be listening right now, and they're going to say, "Oh, Leanne, this is brilliant." So I want to know if I'm in my meeting, what can I be looking for to see the difference between tension and friction? I heard you start talking to a couple of things. Yeah. If they're wanting to also perhaps be modeling, advocating yeah. for when this is happening, what can they? So start-
1: tension is often questions and friction yes. statements, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, tension is wow. Okay. I hear you. I hear that plan. How would this impact our customers on the West coast? Yeah. And, and what that's saying is I'm paying attention to a stakeholder you haven't paid attention to yet. Mm. And I'm not happy with the plan, but it's saying it in a way that allows the person to kind of get there, pay attention to something new versus friction is, you know, that's stupid. That's going to piss off all our West coast customers. Right. Right. So, questions versus statements is one. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, great tension often starts with the problem, not with the solution. Mm-hmm. So, how are you thinking about this? What do you think we have to solve for? Versus friction goes straight to, I think we need to do this. Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, f- um, productive conflict tension often has. Um. You know, it's a little bit quieter. It's, uh, it's got a little bit more oxygen in the conversation friction, mm-hmm. you can start to notice that the volume is going up, the the cadence of the conversation is increasing, we're starting to hear interrupting, yes. um, people are reiterating and covering the same ground over and over that mm-hmm. usually means they don't feel heard. Mm-hmm. Because when there's tension, um, it's a lot of like, oh, I hadn't thought about that now let me iterate my proposal incorporating your piece in friction it's just like i heard you and let me tell you a third time why you're wrong um so those would be some of the key things i'm listening for i I keep teasing that i want to create shazam for teams where you just hold up the phone to the room and it diagnoses your dysfunction yeah Um, So we don't have that yet. So those are the things I'm listening for.
0: Yeah, I hear, I'm just thinking, since I do so much work on the emotional intelligence piece, I'm just seeing some very deliberate changes that are happening on the EQ side. It feels like on the other side that there's empathy, there's listening. Um, there's coming from a place of wanting to understand, um, there's responding instead of coming from a place of reacting, whereas the other piece is very much. I'm also wondering, Leanne, where would psychological safety come in from all of this?
1: Yeah. So friction just erodes psychological safety in a big, huge hurry. Right. So, so tension, um, is a great way of saying, you know, I respect that you come at this from a different angle than I do. And this is a safe place to disagree. It's yeah. a safe place to explore that. I, I value, um, you might even say like, I honor your um, contributions. So those sorts of things. So um, psychological safety, it's really, 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 um, I, I think the, the more productive conflict we have, the higher the psychological safety gets. Because people learn that they can come out the other side and the relationship will be stronger. Yes. Whereas as soon as you get into friction, the psychological safety is eroded really, really quickly. So I think about psychological safety. If I have a team that I'm starting with that has neither productive conflict nor psychological safety, yes. I think about the two of them in a three-legged race. Okay. So it's like, okay, I need to have some kind of a ground rules conversation. So the psychological safety foot can, can go a little bit. Um, but then I'm not going to, it's not going to be any safer until we have some kind of experience of a productive conflict conversation. That's like, okay, that was manageable. Right. And then we can go a little further on the safety and a little, we can take the conflict. A little, and so we just, we three-legged race it. Those two ankles are tied together. A little oh, bit nice. of psychological safety, a little bit more conflict. And then you know, at some point they figure out if you ever watch a three-legged race, you know, about halfway down, the really good team finally yes. figures out, they get yeah. into yes. a cadence and yes. They, yes. Like, they get it going Yeah, um, because psychological safety and productive conflict are this, this really quick um, virtuous cycle that begins to happen.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It reminds me, even when you're talking about the trust piece, right? Because now you're seeing this consistency thing like, oh, okay, we can do this. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. Okay. It wasn't as bad as I might've thought, okay, I'm going to try that again. And I'm going to try that again. And then the more you start to recognize, oh, it's okay. It's a place now that we can. Um, And so when you start to think about organizations where you've worked and supported them in this way, um, what do you notice are the biggest wins that happen where you start to see, like you go in, this wasn't happen This wasn't necessarily working as well. And then you start to see some of those shifts. What are some of those quick wins?
1: Yeah, we're working with one right now and it's just so amazing. So you just, we've been with them just over a year And they had some really bad friction to start with people storming out and be like, it was quite something. Um, and now we've got them to productive conflict. So the quick wins along the way were somebody, you know, stopping to ask a question who would normally have defended before asking a question. That's like, Oh wow. And when the other person sees that sometimes they're kind of like, Oh, okay. That's different. So that's a good sign. Um, and, and when the person does that shifts from defending to curiosity for the first time, the other person notices and tends to then be careful to do a really good job answering, right? Because they, they notice that something's different. So that's big. Mm-hmm. I notice people um, start not taking things so personally, right? So in in the first few rounds, everything's personal. They're like, they're hurt or they're affronted or they're whatever. And all of a sudden they, they hear it and they're like, oh, okay. Like they, right. And it's like, okay, but let's talk, even, even if they don't agree, they don't agree with the idea as opposed to it feeling like it was some attack. Right. Wow. So, you know, you really can start to see quickly the difference. And, you know, with the team I was with last week, what I said to them is I was just, it's the first time it's ever felt like we as a team are together, trying to figure out how to solve this. And I think historically Mm. it was all blame, you know, sales was blaming engineering and engineering was blaming sales and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it's the first time where now they're like, these are hard problems we have to solve. We're in a tough situation. And now it feels like they're trying to solve them together. It's, you know, I, I was very taken aback last week at just how much progress there was and, you know, this team also always goes for dinner together after, cause it's, you know, they're only together every once in a while in person and yeah. just the conversations at dinner and, and, you know, the groupings were different for a while. It was always the same folks would, you know, rush to get the chairs together at dinner. Um, and now I find they're not so careful about who arrives when and where they sit nice. because it's just a safer environment to sit with anybody. So, yeah,
0: nice, yeah, nice. So the name of the show is Inspirational Leadership. And when you start to think about leaders who are inspiring leaders that are creating environments that really support strong, sustainable, high-performing, high-functioning teams, what are some of those qualities you'd like to see in leaders?
1: So definitely the emphasis on alignment. So understanding that their role is to answer more of the why questions and get the hell out of the way on the how questions, right? So inspirational leaders know, my job is to answer the why questions, together we'll figure out the what questions, and then I leave you and delegate to you to answer the how questions. So that's a big one. Uh, On the team dynamic side, inspirational leaders understand the importance of trust because there's no hope of productive conflict until we have psychological safety and trust, and they model candor, They encourage empathy, um, those sorts of things, and they they are intolerant, wholly intolerant of um, of friction and people who are jerks. Um, And and between those two things, a a leader can muddle through on so much else if they're obsessed with creating alignment um, and they are obsessed with creating a trust-based productive conflict dynamic everything else is negotiable after those two things.
0: Yeah. It feels very aligned with what I say, Leanne, about not tolerating the brilliant (laughs) a-holes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't care how brilliant they are. There is collateral damage and those behaviors are not acceptable.
1: Um, Leanne, thank you. It was a brilliant a-hole that came across the table from the original story when I was Yes. So it it was, it was one, one brilliant one and one, you know, very mediocre average one. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes, yes. Um, I can think of many along the <laughs> journey and the ramifications and the yes, the collateral damage. I will make sure that I include show notes with everything a couple of those things that you've talked about yeah. in terms of those icebreaker questions. Um, and, and there was a couple of blog articles too. I'll let yeah, you that know e- making emails too. suck less we'll Yes yeah, yeah, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Um, but I always like to give you my wonderful guest Leanne, an opportunity to leave the audience with a final thought. whatever is showing up for you in this moment.
1: Oh well, that some things are worth fighting for.
0: Mm. mm-hmm. Mm, love it. Agree, agree, agree. Uh, where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Yeah. So leandavy.com which would be easy if both my names weren't impossible to spell. So just, <laughs> I'm sure you'll link to it, but it's Leanne with an I and Davy with an EY. And, but yes, the good news is there's only two of us in the whole planet earth. Um, which is good. I don't have to share my name really, but no one knows how to spell it. So that's where you'll find me. The place to connect with me though, um, there's tons and tons and tons of free resources on leonadavid.com. But the place to connect with me is, um, you know, my goal is to make LinkedIn. I talk about my LinkedIn couch. So I want you to come over to my LinkedIn, sit out on the couch. I'm trying to make my LinkedIn couch where the most important conversations about work are happening. So LinkedIn is a place to come check it out and, and please comment, get involved in the conversation. Cause I really, really value it.
0: Yes. Uh, Leanne is very active there and has so much valuable insight to share. So go connect with Leanne on LinkedIn. I will have <laughs> her information in the show notes. Thank you so much for, being Oh, thank
1: here. you. So fun.
0: Um, and for everyone, wherever you are in the world, we're saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sending tons of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.